this is really my long-term goal and hope of this work. How can we inform public health frameworks, take into account the diverse needs and specifics of each community and every child's needs within that community? My name is Tina Malti. I'm a member of the psychology department here at UTM. I also direct the Center for Child Development, Mental Health and Policy. I think that also requires that people from different fields work together with community members and diverse stakeholders because only by creating this holistic perspective on children can we move toward a more complete understanding and then, of course, toward helping them to really reach their full potential. Kids, kindness, and community. Hello and welcome to View to the U, an eye on the UTM academic community. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members and students from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of UTM science labs, enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs on campus, and put a spotlight on our academic community at large. On the new season called UTM in the Community, I will introduce you to some of the people from our vibrant and ever-growing scholarly community, from some of our UTM faculty members and leadership team to students who are making an impact with various communities, both at the local level and on a global scale. On today's episode of View to the U, my guest is Tina Malti, a faculty member in the Department of Psychology and the director of the Center for Child Development, Mental Health and Policy, or CCDMP for short. But those aren't her only titles, and I'll get to that in a second. Over the course of this interview, Tina talks about her work at CCDMP, which was established in 2019 and for which she is the founding director. But in addition, Tina is a world-renowned expert whose contributions to child mental health and development extends over the past two decades. Prior to the birth of CCDMP, in 2010, she established and is the founding director of the Laboratory for Social Emotional Development and Intervention, which seeks to explore the roots and ramifications of kindness and aggression in children. She discusses some of her findings related to children's mental health and also offers a few suggestions for fostering more empathy in people. And, in conjunction with our theme for this season of the podcast, Tina also talks about the benefits of community-engaged scholarship and how it differs from traditional scientific research. She also shares some of the unexpected but extremely valuable outcomes that she's seen in her research over time in working with various communities, as well as what she sees on the horizon for her field. Tina Malti is a professor in the Department of Psychology at U of T, Mississauga. She earned a master's degree in psychology at the Free University in Berlin, Germany, and a PhD in developmental psychology from the Max Planck Institute for Human Development and Free University in Berlin. She also did postgraduate degrees at the Free University as well as the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. She is a registered psychotherapist and clinical psychologist, and she holds an Alexander von Humboldt Professorship of Early Child Development and Health at Leipzig University, where she leads the Humboldt Research Group for Child Development. Tina joined the faculty at UTM in 2010. 
The main goal of our research is to promote mental health in children and adolescents and to nurture positive development in children facing different levels of adversity. And you have long-standing ties with Germany. I understand you just got back and I think you're going back and you're originally from Germany. But I just wondered if you could speak a little bit more about the work that you do there at the Humboldt Research Group for Child Development and the recent professorship that you're doing there. So I think the work that we are doing with the Humboldt Group now is focused on trauma and uh, traumatic experiences and the nuances that kind of children can experience so because there are different levels of trauma, for example, interpersonal trauma or abuse in the family context, but also trauma at the environmental level, including exposure to war or forced migration. And we want to understand how do those different types of experiences affect the children's development and mental health, and what do we need to do specifically, possibly for each of those experiences or combinations of experiences to nurture every child in the best possible way. So it's really a transformatory line of work that is based on my previous work, but also extends and transforms it because now we really want to systematically look into the different levels and layers of experience a child might have across the first two decades of life and how that kind of translates into healthy trajectories and different levels of needs and strength in children. And so the work in Germany, though, is slightly different from your program of research here, um, mm -hmm. but also building on mm -hmm. what you've done here. Yeah, it's building on what I've been doing here and our longstanding work here, but it also is transformatory in that we now really want to look at how do the different types of experiences, including more severe trauma, but also more everyday exposure to trauma, but also more societal experiences such as discrimination or social exclusion, How do those experiences affect children's development and what do we need to do to help them overcome those experiences? And that's what we want to do very specifically now and on a larger scale. So ultimately, the hope would be to develop transformatory actions that can really inform public policy and health systems in that area. And I know we chatted a little bit before we started recording, but I guess I'm still thinking about this word trauma and that I'm sure takes many different forms, but it's too much of a stretch to say what some of these children encountered over even the pandemic is a trauma or would you say that? I think it can be. It depends on the environment and the kind of experiences, but I think that some of the experiences have been traumatic and also require special attention from us, from a research side, but also from a practical side. Because, of course, it's been an exceptional time for many children, as we know. And I do think that also issues of social isolation and not being exposed to close relationships can have severe effects on someone's development. Yeah. And so I know that, you know, the new season of the podcast is focused on community-engaged learning, and you've been so much a part of community-engaged research and learning. I just wonder how you would define that area. So community-based research is a participatory way of doing research with community members. And what that means is that the community members have a strong saying and voice in what the issues of the research are in the first place and how it's going to be implemented within the community. So it's participatory from the beginning throughout the process of implementing a research project until the end. And I think that is very empowering for community members. And it's a humbling experience at times for researchers. And it's very beneficial because 
The research is on the one hand shaped by the community's needs and priorities and expectations. And at the same time, the researcher, of course, have a saying in how to do this kind of work. So I think it's beneficial for all involved stakeholders and typically helps create more sustainable impact because that is also what people want. Yeah. And I'm curious because this has been a big focus for you, community-based research and learning, whether you have your own experience in this particular area, either working on someone else's project, well, I guess it's intrinsic to your research, so maybe not how you got into it, but have you had an experience of being a part of a research project? Yeah, I had many experiences, and I think it is a good question because at some point, you know, I wasn't trained by community researchers. My mentors were more traditional scientists. And I developed into a community-based researcher over time. And I think it's personal on the one hand, of course, because of my Palestinian background. And I think the community is different in that it's spread all over the world and the connections are still very important and shape who you are, as for anyone, of course. And at the same time, here at UTM, with the Syrian refugee crisis, when the first newcomers arrived, One of my students at the time just felt so strongly that she wanted to do some research with this community. And I was supportive, although we didn't have any <laughs> grant money or any support in that way, you know, but we just started a small scale project and she connected with that community. And it grew over the years into a project that's been funded by the Public Health Agency of Canada. And where we were able to also give back to that community through interventions that were very sensitive and specific to those communities' needs. So I think through those experiences, I learned the beauty and the benefits of this kind of work. And it transformed me as a researcher and as a person, you know, overnight. <laughs> At some point, I just woke up and discovered, you know, this is now who we've become through those people and through those collaborative initiatives. Because it wasn't easy at the beginning and it did require patience and lots of open-mindedness and cooperative spirit. But I discovered that the people are extremely generous and want to contribute and want to make it work and are also very grateful for being included in a university environment and proud. And so I think it's very beneficial from all perspectives. And then, of course, we connected and reached out to other communities over the years and developed connections with other communities, including the Black Canadians and other specific communities in our region, but also collaborated with the Peer Region to help them implement some of the services, but also continue our work on how to nurture every child in the best possible ways and how to promote mental health. They were also really interested in learning about the research. For example, we created what's called a needs assessment. So we asked children, but also caregivers, what is it that they need in terms of, you know, their health and all kinds of other issues in their everyday life. And I think they were very keen on learning about what it is that their community said. So, for example, many of them said that they need more health services, right, that they really feel a strong need to receive services, at the same time not knowing how to reach out and get those services, right? So that was an area that caregivers mentioned. And when you do these kind of assessments, you learn what it is that they need and that you can contribute. And that informs research because you can include it in more standardized assessments later at the population level to make sure you cover all the potential needs of the entire population, for example, which is in our region and province and country incredibly diverse, as we all know. Yeah. You know and so to be inclusive, I think that's also an important goal. So I think at the end of the day, this work also helped us 
understand what it means to be more inclusive or move toward more inclusiveness in research. Because in the past, of course, research was based on middle to high income samples, which was very important and informative to understand typical trajectories of development and health. And there are many commonalities, but there are also specific needs based on experiences and cultural customs, and those need to be understood carefully. But I think that's an amazing, unanticipated outcome. 100%, Yeah. yeah. Really unanticipated, because at the time, of course, I had some concerns. We didn't have much funding, and none of the measures had been translated into Arabic. We had to do lots of translational work and create lots of new measures and strategies to reach out to those community members in a way that would reach them, but is also, you know, scientifically sound. But that's also the beauty of it, right? You learn how to adjust and not just do whatever it is, you know, and apply your textbook knowledge. You adjust based on people's experiences, which is a unique an incredibly enriching process also for students and student learning, I find. And all of the students in the CCDMP feel that way. I'm confident to say that. I think they all think it's an incredibly enriching learning experience. That's amazing. I think that research has become more attuned and increasingly focused on community participation to help inform findings. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the benefits, but also are there any drawbacks to including the community in a research project? For any approach, there are pros and cons, right? But the benefits are, of course, much bigger and more important than some drawbacks. I think the most important benefit is that we can now generate knowledge about a broader spectrum of the population by understanding that we have to study the specific communities to understand child development and mental health. And this is relatively new, but I think it's now becoming a more commonly accepted kind of assumption. And I think that matters because many of the communities we do research with now never had been exposed to any type of research. And so, you know, all the assumptions that were made were made based on different communities. And that is very exclusive, but also a very assuming approach to what and what not to generalize. And I think people, there is more sensitivity now. I think this is progress in terms of the scientific community has made progress. And I also think there is more openness across diverse communities to contribute and also join research initiatives because they realize They want to know more about their own community. So it's really about, you know, understanding the specific needs and strengths of each community in a way. And I think this is a huge benefit. So research is becoming much more informative that way, especially if you think about how we can translate research into policy and make the transfer from research to policy and to practice and vice versa. So I think that's been very beneficial. I mean, some of the drawbacks, I guess are, of course, that it takes time and patience and open-mindedness. You need to build trust. I think this is everyone knows this who has done this kind of work. You need to build trust and maintain trust and create relationships and be patient. And, you know, sometimes to take it one step further, the scientific system kind of doesn't work that way, right? So the timing issues do not always work, right? So community work is slow and very much to the ground and based on people's needs and priorities. But the scientific system doesn't operate under those assumptions, or not always. And I think that can create some struggles, especially for younger scientists, how to prioritize and so forth. So I'm hoping that the scientific systems are going to change. I think that would be important to continue 
this kind of research, which is the future. You can clearly see that participatory approach is required everywhere now, right? We need to have boards where the people who are being studied or who are community members are part of this whole process. And that means for research that the system, that the same kind of change needs to happen in the future. And I think you're speaking to a point that just in even thinking through that question, I guess I was thinking about drawbacks in terms of if a community felt that they were being exploited. But to your point, Mm -hmm. if you're building that trust, Mm -hmm. I think they can feel at least that to justify the means. 100% and you need to give back, right? And I think this typically, if you really take it seriously, the assumption that it's participatory, it's not an issue because typically this is what you keep talking about, right? What it is that the community gets and so forth. But at the same time, that not always is in line with what's required from the scientific system in terms of outputs and expectations. So I think We need to find ways to integrate those approaches better to make it possible for younger scientists to strive in those environments and still be very productive, but at the same time contribute in meaningful ways to communities and do this kind of research. Because at the same time, you know, there is an increasing need to justify research, which I think is at the end of the day a good thing. And I think community-based work typically provides justifications because the communities want it to happen. I'm even thinking about extending the definition of community even to, say, some of the students that work with you in in your lab, that they're also contributing. But also, I liked what you said earlier about the one student who proposed this project. And I just think how they're also contributing in that way to your community. They are, you know, and sometimes they come from similar or same communities and want to give back. Or sometimes they just have a very strong sense for social justice. And I think it does also, you know, shape our community, of course, the kind of students we work with, the CCDMP as an environment. And I think we've gone a long way because of that. So I'm incredibly grateful. And I think it's entirely unique in that way and keeps changing too. So that's a good thing too. Yeah, that evolution. It's an evolution. How do you see this area evolving in the future, either in terms of child development and wellness that you've been focused on for most of your career, but also community-engaged research, how it's changing? I think there is an increasing acknowledgement that it is needed to study the specifics of each community and that there needs to be a strong link between the research and the given community to make it work. And I think that is going to extend in the future, this kind of model, and there will be more partnerships. And I think at the end of the day, you know, when you collect all of those specifics, we will be able to see more knowledge about what is common. And that is very important to inform public policy. And this is really my long-term goal and hope of this work. How can we inform public health frameworks, take into account the diverse needs and specifics of each community and every child's needs within that community. But at the same time, how can we scale it up in a way that is sensitive towards those specific needs and nuances, but at the same time acknowledges that there are commonalities. And I think that also requires that we take the notion of interdisciplinarity seriously, Mm -hmm. that people from different fields work together with community members and diverse stakeholders because only by creating this holistic perspective on children can we move toward a more complete understanding and then, of course, toward helping them to really reach their full potential. And that is the long-term goal because that is still in the infancy steps. You know, we are far beyond our human potential. And I think it's also our responsibility as scientists and as a society 
to create more knowledge and strategies that move toward that direction. Yeah, and then this kind of then leads into my next question, and I don't know if this is a fair question, but if you had top three suggestions yeah. for fostering more empathy and kindness in adolescents and adults too, if you had some, because I know you work on a lot of strategies, and I feel like, I don't know, we hear a lot of bad news about some kids being bullies and mm. not very empathetic, but are there ways that you've come across that you would say are the best ways to foster that? It's a really good question. And to your point, I mean, bullying is actually on the rise again, which is something that is unfortunate that we do see an increase in bullying and aggression once again. Because as you know, I've been studying youth violence for many years now. I think there are three more general points that are not necessarily based on my scientific <laughs> work, but of course they are part of it. I think the first is to be present and pay attention to the person who's sitting in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking I, at you, Tina. I don't have to say anything anymore. <laughs> But, you know, really seriously, you know, listen carefully. I think that is very important. And pay attention, be present. And the second is to explore new things and people mm -hmm. and get out of your comfort zone. Because typically someone in need is out of their comfort zone. So I think that helps a lot to understand how it might feel. So, you know, try to get into experiences that are kind of out of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And then the third is something that I preach to myself regularly, and that is even if there is someone who seems very different from you, try to find some similarities. Sometimes it is hard, but you should try as long as you can find at least one similarity. So I think these are three things that might help to foster some empathy. I think that's great advice. And it's mm -hmm. making me think, I remember reading about some study where they said that reading made people more empathetic. 100%. Um, but sometimes it's hard, I know myself, to get the younger generation to read. It is. They're That's why I wasn't saying it. Typically, I would have said reading, you know, because then you learn about different perspectives. But I mean, it's hard to encourage them to read, right? So maybe mm. it's not about reading. It's just they can find the experiences and put them into those places. Mm -hmm. But it needs to be something that is out of your kind of everyday experience and out of your comfort zone. And it can be just a small. I mean, I know that you've been doing lots of social media work. I guess that anything related to when they visit the social media. They have all kinds of experiences. Yeah, and I think that that is what it taps into when you're reading maybe about someone else's experience. It's just to your point about thinking through how you're similar to that person, someone else's perspective. And even the bullies' perspectives, right? Because typically in adolescence, bullies are, of course, not liked. But if you can try to find one similarity between you and them, that can help increase some understanding so it could be you know some rage against a teacher or whatever right it doesn't need to be all personality wise right that might be yeah. too hard but something kind of small like little frustrations or habits anything really you know what i mean yes totally and vice versa equally important of course the victim or the child who's been picked on right so because typically they're also excluded but what is similar between you and them and you're making me think i knew someone and she said her daughter was being bullied and this yeah. was when she was it's younger the mom invited yeah. the bullies it's over to the house yeah. they watched a movie together or something and just had a little hangout and she said after that they were so much nicer yeah. <laughs> i mean contact is important right yeah. because typically it's harder to like someone whom we do not know and have never had contact with but importantly It needs to be positive contact, right? Yes. So, for example, what she did seems just perfect, right? Because if it's kind of a mix or kind of a more ambivalent experience, it might actually increase uh, stereotypes. Mm -hmm. 
or if you were forcing them to like oh, sit I down and it. talk yeah, about their right. differences. That's right. That wasn't her intention. She's just like, let's just invite them over and we'll pop some popcorn beautiful. and watch a movie. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's and beautiful. she said that that tempered everything. That's such a great example because sometimes that's not possible in school either. Even if a teacher tries, it's sometimes hard to create such positive moments, you know, mm-hmm. if there is already an environment of bullying, for example. It's harder. We've had this chat before, but I'm always curious about how people ended up in their area of research in the first place. Well, I've always been extremely fascinated by children's minds and inner worlds and realizing that there's so much more to explore than one would think. And I've also been inspired by my father, who really loved children and was very supportive and nurturing himself and who made me discover the beauty of the possibilities of a child's mind in many ways. And that's what kind of keeps being there when I think about how I became a child psychologist. That's beautiful. This is my last question. I use the podcast as an outlet to get to know people from our community a little bit better, but I know you're very busy with your work. Are there things you like to do when you're not busy with your research? (laughs) I do. I like meditation and I like nature walks and I also like listening to classical music or occasionally going to a concert with friends or family. And that's something I find very enjoyable. (laughs) That's nice because it taps into everything. It's the connection with people, but also the things that you love, either music or nature. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, Tina. You're really, really great to see you. Thank you. It's so much fun to just speak with you. I feel the same way. You're just amazing. (laughs) You are. I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's show. I would especially like to thank my guest, Professor Tina Malti from the Department of Psychology at U of T Mississauga for being so generous with her time and chatting about her research. She was actually only on campus briefly and I felt so fortunate that she made some time to meet with me because I know that with all of those titles she holds and the labs, yes, I said labs, she oversees, it comes with a lot of responsibilities and engagements. And she is honestly one of the busiest people I know. I'm very grateful to have had the chance to chat with her. If you are a faculty member or student at UTM, please get in touch with me. I would love to meet as many people from our campus's scholarly community as possible and think through how to highlight other people here. I am continuing on with my seventh year of podcasting at UTM, and the theme for season nine is UTM in the community. All episodes of View to the U are produced, written, edited, and interviews conducted by me, Carla DeMarco, Academic Communications and Outreach Manager in the Office of the Dean at UTM. Some days, the interviews and edits take place in the office, and other days at home and over Zoom. If you can take the time to rate the podcast on whatever platform you are using today, it helps others find the show and hear more from our great UTM academic community. Lastly, and as always, thank you to Tim Tinsel for his tracks, tunes, support, and everything. Thank you.